Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I'm back for a brand new season of the podcast with one of my favorite guests and favorite people generally, Jason Perez from Shelf Stories. How do you do, Jason? Yo, my peoples, what's up? I'm leading off this time. I finally got the lead off spot for one of your seasons. Yes, and it is well-deserved. I'm really excited for what we are about to talk about, but uh, I actually have to make a pod news announcement first, and that is that Beyond Solitaire has improbably picked up a sponsor. To, wow, yay, someone's right? giving you resources to help you with things? That's fabulous. Just enough to pay the hosting fees, and I will take it. Uh, so I'm now being sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. In other words, there's an entire university department that's dedicated to games in the classroom, both the art of teaching them and a press that is now making them. Fantastic. So, yeah. So the tagline is just that we believe that learning like games should be compelling, and I will be updating you throughout the season with projects that they are up to. But now down to business. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, one thing that I'm happy about in this situation is that I actually do believe in the CMU mission. So yes. it gives me no pain whatsoever to promote it. Very cool. Yeah. It's nice when you actually care about the your advertising. <laughs> All right. So we are sort of reprising a discussion that we had back at SD HistCon 2021 a few weeks ago, uh, where we talked about gaming tourism and mm. the use of history as sort of a comfort balm as opposed mm -hmm. to actual history in games so this has begun as your brainchild so do you want to give us the delineation of what we were what we we're talking about okay yes we are talking about history in games and anyone any reviewer you ask you know the two of us you ask dan thoreau you ask uh, anybody who uh, wants to take history at least somewhat seriously in games we wonder what to do with games that are clearly not really in it for the history. <laughs> like there's some games that are, and, and this is Beyond Solitaire, Liz is gonna have a, plenty of games that take the history very, very seriously, but then there's a, a whole category of games. They tend to be more popular, more appealing to the mass market that are clearly using history. You know, we'll talk about them in the course of this episode, like games like Hadrian's Wall, games like Puerto Rico, game, you know, colonization games and building, uh, you know, city building games. Like there's all these, um, you know, generally Euro-economic games, but they don't have to be, you know, uh, but these games that use history, but they're not, you know, as Liz was saying, not really using history, you know, not, they, they're not centering that. Um, they're trying to do it for something else. So then I've figured out that the way that those games use it, or the, the lens that I want to use, so this is what the episode's about, the lens that I want to use is historical tourism. Okay, so then Liz kind of, let the cat right out of the bag. Well, thank you, Liz. <laughs> I'm up front. <laughs> right. Uh, in the sense that, okay, what is the difference between an historical tourism game and a history game? So a history game wants to present an argument about history, right? And it's usually presenting multiple sides and it's usually presenting some kind of conflict because all of history is conflict. Uh, and there's something, you know, there's something to learn, right? And it inspires critical thinking. Uh, an historical tourism game, by contrast, is leveraging the history. It's uh, taking the history and taking advantage of people's familiarity with the history. I've heard of Hadrian, I've heard of Puerto Rico, I've heard of all these things. And they're leveraging it for attention, sales, and comfort. Th at the end of the day, the primary goal of an historical tourism game is leveraging the content for the attention. It, it leaps off the shelf at people. They're more likely to buy it and they're more likely to enjoy it and have a good time, shut their mind off and have a nice relaxing time in the history. Why is that called that tourism? Because is that what you do as a tourist? 
You know, you're going down to, you know, La Isla del Encanto, Puerto Rico. And, you know, you're just going to, you're not sitting there doing anything. You're just you know, enjoying your time on the beach uh, and not, you know, and not using your mind. So then, you know, and, or like you go into the Hall of Presidents in Epcot Center and you, oh, there's Jaw Jack and Abe Lincoln, Honest Abe. He's uh, chopping down a cherry tree. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, like putting your forearm up like this. Is that the universal sign of like, okay, this is hokey. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on the podcast i'm doing the thing with my hand go ahead and check out uh shell stories by the way the video of this recording is on shelf stories my youtube channel anyway absolutely so then so then you know go to you go to the hall of presidents in epcot center you're not there to learn real history you're, you're there to kind of get the stylized feel good you know sometimes even jingoistic but depending on what it's trying to do but it's definitely not presenting real history it's presenting this sheen this veneer of history that is trying to evoke certain emotions in the audience so then that's my lens my current lens for understanding these euro games and uh, popular mass market games games that are trying to make themselves available to an audience by passing them through this screen this filter that cleans out the difficult parts and I do think this is worth talking about partially because publishers do, partially because publishers are doing to sell games, but also because people are saying that that's what they want. I mean, just yesterday on Facebook, I saw yet another comment, keep your politics out of my games. No I'm politics, gaming. no politics. <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> I am just gaming for fun. I'm so tired after work. I'm doing this to turn my brain off and just have a good time. So why is that a problem? Hmm. Why is it a problem? Because it's history. <laughs> because I okay, and I'm gonna I will, I'll say this um, throughout because we're gonna do two episodes, and we're gonna talk we're gonna talk specifically about war games and how like war games in particular are you know they challenge us right, <laughs> and you know and, and how do you how do you depict brutality, how do you gamify these things, um, but just you know from the very beginning here, uh, I don't have a problem with people's fun. I'm not against fun. I like fun. Uh, don't do we get accused, Liz, of being the no fun people, the the scoldy, wokey, whatever people that just want to ruin people's fun? Do you ever get accused of that? Actually, no. My students think I'm boring. That's about <laughs> it. <laughs> well, I'm the one causing good trouble, so I get accused of it all the time. Uh, <laughs> that we're out to ruin people's fun, and like we're just trying to make people feel guilty. We're trying to upset people, maybe to you know get power over them or to evoke a reaction to them. Like I got no, I I, I am you know shelf stories is what it is, but I'm also in the dice tower. Dice tower is all about fun. I'm also in the one stop co-op shop. One stop co-op shop is also about fun, 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 all the fun, right? I'm cool with fun. It becomes difficult when these history topics that aren't so fun get appropriated and passed through that screen, that filter, where it's like, okay, this aspect of history, whatever it is, is an opportunity to learn, an opportunity to enrich ourselves culturally, or an opportunity to kind of reflect on what, what went wrong. There's all sorts of things that can happen with a history, you know, grappling with history, but passing it through the film passing it through the, the must make the audience comfortable, passing it through the let's put our brains away. And what results on the other side is often this like, ugh. to anybody who knows anything about history, it's what, what am I playing here? What's happening on the, and we'll get into it throughout the course of the episode, the exact things that are happening on the table that once you pass it through that filter. So then no, there's nothing wrong with fun. However, there is a difficulty when you take 
things that actually happened and things that people have memory about, especially if you're from a different perspective, especially from a marginalized perspective. So like if you're passing the game like Puerto Rico through the filter, then I recognize what Puerto Rico is in history compared to what's on the, the, the table and, I, and the differences stick out. They won't stick out if you don't know. And so in a way, it's like people are defending their right to not know. And that's not, that's not a thing that I'm going to defend. I think that's fair. So let's go to some specific examples. I'm going to go ahead and lead with Hadrian's Wall, since we have both talked about this one, and because it fits in with some of my work from my own site and from last season. So Hadrian's Wall's rule book. Um, well, tell me what it is. What, what is Hadrian's Wall? It is, what weight would you say that is? It's a, it's a rolling right. It's a flipping right. So like lighter, but it, it's a, it's basically a giant spreadsheet and you're rolling a dice and you entering the values in, you know, in, in roll and write style, you're trying to build a wall. Uh, and there's a b- whole bunch of boxes, <laughs> tons of them. And you're, as you're flipping the cards and you're getting, you know, inputs, you, you're entering them in, depending on where you want to do, what aspect of the wall you want to build. And so it's taking the flip and write genre and kind of pushing it in terms of its complexity about as far as it can go. It's like, it's probably like a two, 2.5 which is a pretty crazy weight for a flip and right. But they yeah, managed to do it. Yeah, I was going to say, is it a, a mid weight roll and right? Is that how you describe it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it so is I'm definitely not... way more complex than your average roll and right. Yes. That's why people love it, at least right. in our community. Yes. And I've seen some footage. It looks great. I haven't played it myself, but I hear it's a really, really good puzzle. However, yeah. I have read the rule book. And oh, there I mean, is read a... the rule book. Huh? Oh, we read the rule book. Oh, yes, we have. There is a major issue right at the beginning of the rule book at least for me um and and for you as well because there's just a little disclaimer about oh the workers in this game you know some of those were slaves and we're going to honor them for two seconds before continuing on to our fun so you could just skip the little side text box and go forward and i don't know i just don't feel like that's enough if you're either don't acknowledge it at all or take it seriously but i sort of feel like the little ass covering you know, oh, there's slaves in here. We are going to acknowledge that. And that's enough. It's um, basically like the Surgeon General's <laughs> warning on a cigarette box. Or like, uh, I, you, people don't notice this, but like they, and if you go to like McDonald's or play, especially in my, where I'm from, New York, uh, they have the calorie count listed on your, you know, whatever it is, your combo. So it's like 1400 calories for this one meal, which you know, if you know anything about calories, it's, that's terrible. Uh, and like, it's there. And it's there for people to know, so they can't, you know, they can't be accused of hiding it. However, how many people actually process what the calendar count is? How many people actually process the Surgeon General's warning? How many people actually process that like, oh, there's a disclaimer that says that though it was slaves that actually built this thing, but throughout the rest of the rule book, we're going to call them servants. Well, workers or whatever. I, I think I think they're called servants, actually. Yeah, well, actually, that's something I have to correct in my class all the time. Uh, the Latin word for slave is servus, S-E-R-V-U-S. It looks like servant. Right. And my students instinctively will translate it that way. And I have to stop them and be like, no, we cannot do that because that's sanitizing. You have to be right. real. The Romans were messed up and we're not going to hide that in this class. <laughs> well, we're going to hide that in Hadrian's Wall. We are. Yes, absolutely. We're right. going to make it sound, we're going to make it sound a lot better. And 
I, you know, those of you who are aware of my work so far um, know that I, I recently wrote a series of blog posts and did uh, a podcast with Dan Throw talking about gladiator games and how we like to think of gladiators as fighting for honor and glory. It's fun. They're doing it for the fame while downplaying the fact that most gladiators were slaves. And I have issues with Hadrian's Wall on similar grounds. It's not that you can never have a game about Hadrian's Wall. It's that you shouldn't give a nod to the existence of slaves and then spend the rest of your time pretending they were never there. Right. I have the same criticism of Puerto Rico, which has been a, my thing for the last year. And I'm celebrating one year of that video coming out as this video comes out, which is pretty uh, cool. One year of good trouble on Shell Stories. I'm very happy about that. Uh, and so it tells a similar lie of that the the slaves that came over on that come over on the ship that worked your fields the rule book the original rule book called them colonists right and they're not colonists that makes it sound like okay there was a bunch of immigrants that came in they worked the land and they got rich on their own horatio algier style no thank you those were slaves and they died and they rebelled and they stole and they killed their masters and they did all these things in real life this is real life stuff we're talking and they, you know, that's completely erased in the game because the in the workers in Puerto Rico are very inert. You know, you, you bring them off the ship and they do all the work that you want them to. If you want them to go to the city, they go to the city. If you want them to, you know, hack some corn, they hack some corn. Whatever you want, they're uh, just bound by the game engine, not by any kind of agency on the part of the workers. So then, that's not history. <laughs> so like, and that's part of why I wanted to. Uh, distinguish a historical game from a historical tourism game. When we get into online conversations about this and, you, and we criticize these things, very often you'll say, well, we can't erase history. It happened. You know, and, and all this like, you know, defense of what is. And it's like, well, is that really history? Or is there a lie right in the middle of the history too for the sake of our comfort? Once we've admitted the lie, which is very obvious, you know, like, you know, just open five pages of a history textbook and you'll see it a lot. Then you'll see that this is not real history. So I want to be able to craft a category where we're talking about what's happening in these uh, like kind of mass marketing type games or broader audience type games. And I want to be able to talk about that separate from a, a actual history game. All the stuff that Liz is talking about on her channel, history up and down. <laughs> be honest, I'll tell you that right now. So, well, oh, look at that. I got such... Days of Fire, Nights of Fire right behind me. I bet they've been there the whole time. History, closer okay. to history than other games, but like then, you know, than whatever it is. So, I mean, and I could talk about how they pull it off in a second, but like, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between games that present arguments about history and games that have to lie. Let's just call it what it is. Lie in order to appeal to people and make the comfortable play. You know what's interesting about that, though, is you're pointing out when you said, but it really happened, what fascinates me about that is you're pointing out a very interesting little pulse point. I don't know how long we want to dwell on this, right? Sure, let's do it. Let's, but, let's dwell on pulses. I like that. <laughs> but we, we are okay with lies of omission, if that yeah. makes sense. It's okay to kind of scrub away something that's unpleasant. But if you do something that's perceived, at least, as a lie where you're kind of updating a historical situation to include a greater diversity of people, which actually is often quite accurate. Um, you know, within the Roman history community, there's been a raging arguments because, you know, people want to present even British Romans as very white, but Rome itself was a very multicolored, multinational, well, I mean, multi-province, right, mm -hmm. empire. And so when you want to add in 
some diversity, for example, or add in something that's a little bit imaginative that makes things more palatable for a modern, you know, play group, that's a problem. And you will inevitably get somebody that yells at you about it, that that's not mm -hmm. fair. You shouldn't put that in there. I mean, I remember people arguing about Game of Thrones treatment of women and it'd be like, well, women in the middle ages were treated horrible. It's just historical. It's fantasy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I guess what I'm saying, right, is I find it very interesting that there are some lies, right, mm -hmm. that maybe aren't even really lies or just perceptions about how we think the world should be, how we want it to be, that we have a problem with, or you'll get a firestorm about in a community, mm -hmm. right? But then if you have an actual historical inaccuracy through omission, that's okay, because I just want to play my game. So, I mean, let's, I mean, you had um, Dr. Rail, uh, Dr. Patrick, or you're going to have Dr. Patrick on uh, here. I'm going show. to have him, yeah. Going to have him on this season of, of Beyond Solitaire. I can, I can do advertising too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know, and, and ask any game designer that is that wants to do something serious with their history. Like Cole Worley talked about this too. Um, games have to lie, have, like, or I should say, like games have to gloss, right? Every game has to, like, you, like you know, in order to be a fun game at all, like you have to, you know, filter out a lot, you know. So if I'm making a worker game, I'm not gonna, you know, uh, if I'm like a boss and I'm having a worker, I'm not gonna put in all the stuff that makes a worker worker. I'm not gonna pay, you know. Uh, sales tax i'm not gonna have hr i'm not gonna do all the things i have to do i'm not i'm just i'm a boss right. and i'm gonna make my worker do what he can do what he can hopefully you pay it a lot of games you don't which i got a problem with that too but whatever but like you, you have to streamline a lot in order to in order to get a game to the table that functions and is and, and works so it inherent in the game making process is a a process of glossing and omitting and editing so that that's not I'm not like by uh, you know making the argument that games shouldn't lie. I'm not saying that games shouldn't gloss because games have to gloss. I want simple, yeah. fun games. It's I think it's the questioning is what is getting glossed and how are we glossing it? And it stands out that the gloss almost always is in the in favor of power, is yes. in favor of oppression. And that's the thing that hangs over this discussion, which a lot of people don't want to talk about. What we're talking about is bosses oppressing workers. We're talking about, uh, you know, white supremacists oppressing, you know, marginalized people. We're talking about, you know, patriarchy. We're talking about colonialism. Like the glosses that happen, the lies that happen are almost always based on oppression. Like real world oppression. And it's not just about the fence about, I mean, real world oppression just has you know, um, residents today. Why do I have a problem with Puerto Rico? Because Puerto Rico is in a very similar colonial spot than was 400 years ago. Has much changed but 400 years ago to now. They ask a lot of Puerto Ricans who know what's going on and they'll say, okay, some things have changed. Obviously we have running water now, that's great, but we are a colony. We are a neo-colony. And where did that come from? <laughs> 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And why am I playing that again in my game? And why not only why am I playing it, why am I glossing it? Why am I lying about it in order to feel comfortable entering into that space? Because I have no problem. I have no problem with games that want to present difficult history. The, you know, the, the, this guilty land gets uh, quoted a lot uh, by Emma Ball Holland. Uh, you're basically playing a slaver. And like the game says, you are a slaver, be a jerk. You know, and that sit in that emotion, sit in that emotion of being an oppressive jerk. And some people do that. And that's fine within the play space. 
uh, because there's, you know, whatever we could talk about, like in the, the play space, talk about more of that in part two, but I don't have an inherent problem with playing the slaver, playing the jerk, playing the bird. It's when the game makes you play the jerk, but then lies to you and says, oh, you're not actually yes. a jerk. Yeah, yeah, you're a boss, but you're a nice boss. Yeah, you're a, oh, yeah. you're a nice boss. <laughs> so, so like, and, and, and basically lies to you. And I got no problem, no problem with regular game. Like I have no problem with small world. I have no problem with Catan. They don't like evoke real history. It's when you evoke yes. real history that I start to have the problem with the way we sanitize exercises of power in these games. That's, I think, very, very on point. And I mean, even in your real life, think about how many bosses you knew or have had who were horrible bosses who saw themselves as the good guy and you were the annoying worker. And right. the other thing that these games do is not only do they change the narrative a bit to support power, but by doing that, they're also denying agency mm. to the groups that are marginalized in those games. So it's not just an issue of, it's not just an issue of who's in charge. It's also an issue of who gets to take action right in a way that makes sense for them and who mm -hmm. they are and i think that that's interesting as well i mean the servants yeah. in hadrian's wall are very happy to do your bidding <laughs> but that's <laughs> that's probably not not an accurate depiction of what was going on i, I call them boss fantasy games like, the, you know, what is the most, what is the ideal of any boss, any capitalist, any, any, you know, person who uh, runs a business, whatever, nice, uh, you know, pliant workers who don't have, who don't get sick, who don't have children, who don't have sick children, who, you know, don't get called out, you know, they show up whenever you want to, and you pay them nothing, and they don't, they don't bother about it. Like, that is a boss fantasy. Right. And and this is where, you know, I, I tend to focus on economic Euro games because the perspective of an economic Euro game is almost always a boss of something. And every boss just wants to streamline away, yeah, streamline away all difficult parts like paying workers and caring about their health. And but, you know, and that's the, you know, look in labor history throughout. And I'm kind of a labor history guy. You know, it's always the bosses that are trying to, like, you know, do the minimum. And so when we go to these games, we go into these kind of tourist boss fantasy games. Well, then we could realize the bosses, every boss's fantasy, which is at, at least in respect to workers. Oh, we don't have to pay the workers. Let's focus on the quote unquote real challenge of bossing, which is making money. You know, what's so interesting about this too, is that I would venture to guess that the majority of people who play games and enact these boss fantasies are not themselves bosses in real life. Mm -hmm. um, I think that these games, I think in some ways make us happy and make us feel relaxed because they are a space where we control so much and we can live our fantasy of everyone efficiently doing our bidding and everything's really just up to us and how meritocratically deserving we are. And, you know, I think that one of the reasons it's hard to spot that sort of tourism feeling is because it really feeds on things that we want. Look at people who get addicted yeah. to video games. It's because those video games reward you they make you more powerful. They make you more wealthy for doing whatever it is that the game chooses to reward. It feels right. good. And I guess the question is, how do we start to step out of that? Okay. All right. Uh, so I, have we kind of explained the bullshit? Oh, I, I, you probably have to bleep that. <laughs> this ain't no dice tower. We can leave it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I mean, there's lots of, I mean, just to, before we get to like the, because the, I got a lot to wait forward. Uh, I mean, like, because we, we covered like the kinds of lies, like we talked about the straight up lie to your face, 
right? You know, change a word into another word that feels nice. That that is a style of lie. Uh, we have talked about lies of omission, right? Yes. Uh, and you know, there are ways in which you know games that that try to omit things, or you know, like there's a there's like meet middle ways. You know, they they kind of lie, but they kind of don't. I wanted to mention Australia in that case. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Dan. Thorough. again hi dan hopefully was listening uh <laughs> uh made a comment about this about how you know i'm gonna inst- i'm gonna pl- uh, play a colonialism game and martin wallace admitted this in the podcast i want to do this i want to tell the story of australian colonialism from the perspective of the colonizers but i don't want to engage in the brutality in the history so i'm going to change the indigenous into cthulhu monsters and i'm going to you know weave this story about how the cthulhu monsters came in wiped out the indians uh and or, or wiped out the indigenous folks in australia and then, you know, the colonists, which in the game of Australia is like this multicultural uh, group. It's not just like, you know, the white people. Uh, so he changed that too, or, mi- or remixed it a little bit. And now we're now it's okay. And that is not okay. That is washing. <laughs> because, you know, uh, again, this goes back to your point of agency. I mean, if you're an indigenous person in, in Australia, and, you know, if you had any power to tell your story, you would not tell the story this way. You know, yes. it would, you know, you would not replace yourself with a Cthulhu monster and, you know, uh, exist to be conquered and, you know, or nor would you just kind of switch sides and join with the, join up with the colonists. Like that was not, a, that is not a thing that you would do either. So you have an entire um, fiction where, you know, the people that are involved in the historical time period, again, it, you know, it's, it's so important that this is history because history has actual real things attached to them yeah. and people with memory of those real things. And that's the you know real key too. Like if anyone who has a historical memory would look at this and go, that's not that's it is that is not the changes that should that uh certain perspectives would make, right? right. And, and they're always marginalized folks. They're always marginalized folks. Let's just, that has to be centered. Okay. The other thing that I do want to bring up about that, though, talking about agency, right, is yes. that okay. So we're talking about narratives that promote power that continue to push down the marginalized, and their agency is something we're talking about. But Mm -hmm. if you are a person in power, just as with the patriarchy, just as with racism, when you are hurting others, you are hurting yourself. And I think another aspect of this is that the other person who loses agency when you enact that boss fantasy is you, because you wanted the more opiate version of the game that comforted you and lied to you. And you don't even know what you just consented to, Right? (laughs) who you've agreed to be when you enter that role, if you right. have not taken a moment to be thoughtful about it. I think that in something like this guilty land, or, you know, I talk about Spartacus all the time yeah. because in that game, you are a Lenista who buys and kills gladiators and bets on whether somebody's getting beheaded in that fight, but you know, that's who you are. <laughs> and right. so you get to choose. And I also think that kind of making games more palatable also does take away your right to choose what you're embodying and the history that you're choosing to live out within the world of the game. Right. So like, you know, comparing Spartacus, which, you know, you are a, a right jerk and the game is telling you be a jerk and enter this space. Uh, as long as the game is, you know, active and, con- and consensual and, and open and informative about what you're doing, then I'm having a problem. Compare that to a game like Gladius, which yep. <laughs> I'm sure that Liz is a lot to say about Gladius. That's a newer game, drafting game or bidding game. Uh, where you're, you know, b- bidding gladiators and, you know, a simple card game, right? Uh, yeah. But you are basically like a promoter for WWE in that game. 
Like, you know, you're, you're having, you're hiring these wrestlers and you're making the wrestlers doing stuff and you're betting on the outcome where, you know, modern sport is not an analog for the kind of thing that happened in, you know, Roman gladiator games. You know, yeah. it was much well, more ownership driven. It was much, you're, you're much more of a jerk. Yeah. Well, gladius as, as we would define it in the 21st century. Indeed. Well, Gladius is particularly interesting to me because it, the game is, and I say this as a progressive person, right? It's a progressive's dream. Um, the art is diverse. There are characters of all types, both among the players and the gladiators. So if you are looking for a game with representation and a game that, you know, there's there are female designers and female artists on that team, it's right. everything that you're looking for if you're trying to increase diversity in gaming and inclusion in gaming by modern standards. That doesn't change the fact that you're betting on gladiators. The game has very Roman trappings. Mm -hmm. The game got a pull quote from a professor of art history talking about how the game is such a beautiful representation of true diversity and agency among the Roman people. And the moment you do that, you have to acknowledge you're betting on slaves. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about all this agency and all this freedom, literally on the backs of people who are slaves. And right. if you don't have a problem with that because it ticks so many other boxes for you, I have many questions. <laughs> so you're talking about, I mean, so there's a, we can go on and on about like the lies yeah. that games tell. There's a lot of these games, there's a lot of, a lot of flavors of lie. Uh, and again, not gloss, not game because the games half the gloss, lies. Lies that if the gamer knew what you were doing, the gamer might check out. Yep. That is, that would, you know, maybe that's one way to separate a gloss from a lie. That like if the gamer actually knew it and processed this, like, oh, I don't want to play this. And you're denying them that choice. Okay. Yes. So that's number one. Um, there is nothing, nothing that says that gives a creator the sacred right to use history in a game. The, you know, the, the, you don't have a say, you don't say like, okay, because that, that's a big thing, right? Oh, you can't constrain creators. You know, you can't, you know, they have to be able to be free to do what they want. Okay, that on the surface level is fine. And yes, like I'm not going to say shut down the printing presses. I'm not going to say, you know, uh, pox on their lands and they can be, they may never make anything again. I'm not going to say that, but, you know, so they can make your game. So that is, a, it is true on a factual level. You do have the freedom in America or in like a free society. You make what you want, but it is not free of consequences. It is not free right. of criticism. And when someone makes that kind of game, even, you know, diversity laden or whatever it is, there is still the criticism that comes from someone who has an historical memory and from someone who's attuned to the voices of marginalized folks in history and are marginalized folks being represented in this game that are baked into that should be there. You, that game could have been the WWE game. That game could have been, yeah. uh, you know, some the MMA game or some like, you know, drafting, uh, fighting or whatever it is. But they chose to put it like, like you said, uh, Liz, with Roman trappings. And once you add the Roman trappings, we're so used to in our society being able to kind of separate out, you know, and just like, OK, I'm going to use this part of history. I'm going to use this culture. Like, you know, yeah. let's spin the culture wheel. Let's spin the history wheel. And I'm gonna, just going to take that out. And there, that is not like as historians. And I'm not like a historian or story, but I, I like this stuff. I, I can't separate this stuff, and nor do I think a healthy community should. Yes. So, I so you know, so like have all the fun you want, but when you pull in these history things, it comes with consequences that we are articulating. Criticism is not cancellation. I'm not calling for the cancellation of stuff, but I am calling for us to really think hard about that, whether that's what we want to be doing with our history. Yeah, I think that, that it's very important to say, Criticism and cancellation are not the same thing. 
as yeah. a historian, I'm going to criticize anything that steps on my turf that seems worthy of criticism. I mean, it's just part of the part of the job. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just like I'm a game reviewer. Uh, you know, right. when I I'm not going to shut my brain down because I'm a gamer. I mean, as a matter of fact, my fun is using my brain. Yeah. You know, and like you're inviting people into this space and, and almost like commanding them again, the agency thing, shut your brain down. That's the only way to have, you know, um, the only way to have fun in this space is to shut your brain down. And I'm saying that's not my fun. Yeah, I come yeah. into this space. I am promised fun. And why is fun defined the one way, the lowest way, shut your brain down? My fun is using my brain. And if I use my brain, not in like some weird way where I'm like making like impossible connections. If I use my brain to just know stuff <laughs> and connect a few dots, it's not like I'm inventing things whole cloth, like remembering that there were slaves in Rome or remembering there were slaves in Puerto Rico. That is not like out, out of the realm. It's just no. using my brain. And that's fun for me. And I'm being told, don't have your kind of fun, Jason, because we want this. I, yeah, I, and no, I'm not, I'm not cool with that. I completely freely admit I am a navel gazer. I love to kind of <laughs> chew on stuff and think about things and try to draw connections because that is actually who I am as a person, you know, like it or not, that's me. So, you know, my low grade fun is at least doing something like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. I mean, I'm still putting something together. I'm still working my brain on some level because that's, that is what I like to do. Um, you know, I can understand the desire to relax and turn your brain off. Sometimes my therapist actually tells me I should do it more often, but, <laughs> but that's not actually how I'm wired and, you know, picking things apart, putting them back together, you know, that is my fun. And I I'm with you on that, that, you know, I, I don't understand why it would not be fun to learn more about the setting of a game or to think about how it's made, where it's coming from. What does it say? I mean, why isn't that fun? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it goes both ways. Like someone who is on, like, a, I call him like the nice moderate guy, right? Uh, so the nice moderate guy would be like, okay, um, you know, you're ruining my fun by pointing this out. It's like, all right, well, now we're in a, a little bit of Mexican standoff over here. Like, you know, by defending these obvious historical lies, you're ruining Jason's fun. And by me speaking up, <laughs> I'm ruining their fun. So like, how do we resolve, right? And so, you know, the way forward, like, A, the, we do not have a sacred right to these historical games. If you can't pull a comfortable, happy historical game off with your subject matter, then the, you don't have a sacred right to do it. That, you know, put your game on Mars, put your game on, you know, uh, and make some historical fantasy thing. And, you know, there will be a resistance to that because of the attention and the sales. Like that's hanging over this whole thing, right? It's not like great uh, creators can make whatever they want. They're going to make whatever that gets the most attention and sales. Yeah. I mean, put yeah. an SPQR on it and it's going to cross my radar and I'll notice. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, anything with Rome is going to get the attention of Liz and it's going to get covered in Beyond Solitaire. So like, you know, that is, we have to like kind of put that in there where it's like, okay, uh, creators have the right to make what they want, but like they're saying, okay, I want to make attention and sales. Well, this attention and sales is coming with some really ugly stuff. Like welcome to capitalism. Yeah. Like that's, you know, that there are consequences to this stuff. So like, so that's, but that is one way. Like, and I have to put that on there. However, some people are going to want to put history in their games. And, and we, I like history games. Liz likes history games, you know? Uh, so like, what I want to do in terms of like crafting way forward, I, I break this down into three buckets. So like whenever you make a historical game, there's the setting, which is where it is, Rome or Puerto Rico, whatever it is. Uh, there's the perspective, 
Like, who are you in that? Are you from the perspective of a slave or a perspective of a boss? You know, or like, or some kind of other perspective in there. And there's also the audience, right? Who, who is, who do you want to buy the game and what emotions do you want them to feel? So then yeah. break your game down into these three buckets and figure out in your current version of the game, where is the lie or, or what's creating the most problem? So then uh, I, the game I know best is Puerto Rico. So then the setting of Puerto Rico is not just Puerto Rico, but 1492 Puerto Rico, the new world. It says so in the rule book. So that's where we are. That's the setting. The perspective is a merchant trying to build wealth, build plantations that, you know, that word tells you what your perspective is, your plantation owner, right? So then that game is fine in and of itself if it was honest about the slavery and the slave revolts and what had to be done in order to make human beings seeking freedom work your fields. You have to be a, a historical jerk, right? In order yeah. to do that. That game is fine, but then where the problem is, is the intended audience is the mass market, make them feel good. So now we have created the situations where setting a perspective has to be passed through the filter in order to make the audience happy. That's what creates the lie. So then play with one of those dials, figure out what you want your game to be, and then you could, you know, uh, figure something out. So like in Puerto Rico, you could make it real, not lie. <laughs> you could put in mechanisms to have the workers have more agency, as Liz was saying, ha make them rebel, make them run away, which is mo the, mo the rebellion that happened the most was running away, right? Uh, or like do something to your crops, whatever it is. But that would diminish the audience. I can tell you right now, the makers of Puerto Rico do not want to diminish their audience. <laughs> they want to continue to be able to sell their game at Target, sell their game at, you know, fine stores all over the place. They want to continue to hit that mass market. So then they can't change the audience by making the actual setting and perspective more honest. Yeah. So then change your setting, mm -hmm. change your perspective. Your setting could be the same place, but in a different time period. Your right. setting could be the same place, but a different corner of the, uh, why am I doing, you know, the port system? Why, why can I do this other part of Puerto Rico? Uh, you know, the inland where, you know, more like kind of peasant farming was happening. Uh, right. So like or change doing, your, yeah. Right, or like, let's say we're doing medieval Europe or something. You don't have to focus on, you know, the poor peasants suffering in the fields, even though they were there, right? right. You could do something about monks in a scriptorium. You could do something about, right. you know, you could actually do something about those peasants, but it's like them putting together their Christmas festival that year. And you can acknowledge parts of their lives and have them do stuff that's not go serve the feudal lord. Right. I yeah, mean, and just, so like, mm -hmm. there's and so many options. Yeah. Be creative. <laughs> and you're changing the perspective too. You know, you're changing, like, let's say, you know, because again, most Euro games kind of indulge this boss fantasy type thing. And there's plenty of those. So like, I'm not canceling any of them, but like moving forward, do you want your game to have the perspective of a boss fantasy? And if you're trying to make a boss fantasy game that is for the mass market, then, you know, that's going to cause problems. It's just going to, especially if it's historical. So then can you, can it be a worker focused? Can you be like a, you know, a, a, an artisan, right? With a shop. Right. So like, you know, why do you have to be a Lord over serfs? Why can't you be an artisan in a shop? Right. You're doing kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Then your workers can be apprentices that you're training and you're actually exchanging value. And right. that actually seems kind of nice. <laughs> And there's, there are, again, there are playing those games too, right? You know, I think of like Heaven and Ale or something like that, uh, have, where like, you know, you're, you're running a bar <laughs> and, and all that kind of thing. So like, you can, like, there's way, there's room to play. There's room to like adjust those dials, the setting, 
the perspective and the audience. You know, if you're willing to limit your audience, if you're willing to kind of go for the niche, then you can be a little bit more real and, and deal with some more difficult things in your game. The game might get popular anyway, which is like the biggest blessing. It's like, oh, this game is like, you know, like um, Pax Premier, yeah. right? That game isn't going for the mass market. That game is, is making a very, you know, uh, sturdy historical argument about what's happening and it happens to be popular. Great. <laughs> you know, then, but if you're talking about like target level, you know, many, many print run type things, then that's probably not going to, you know, that's, that's a little bit different. Be willing to change your setting and your perspective in order to accommodate that. Don't just jam in. Oh, everybody likes running flight eaters. Everybody likes being the capitalist. Don't just jam that in to get your audience. You can, but people like me and people like Liz will call you out. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. So do you want to kind of wrap up here in preparation for our next episode? So this episode has been about historical tourism. Right. Next episode is kind of more about historical realism and how real it can get. Yes. <laughs> now that you've gone through the BS history, how do you, what, what are um, the issues that are raised when you try to present the real history, particularly in war games? I think war games do probably the best job of presenting history. We'll talk about why. Absolutely. Uh, so for now, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. As always, please yeah. like, please like, comment, subscribe, and be thoughtful about what's in your historical flavored games this week. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a dorky sign off. What was that? <laughs> it's whatever I want. Happy game, everyone. <laughs> Later, everybody.